You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? I'm doing great, man. Uh, today was a really fun day. Got to participate in the Carolina Identity Roundtable um, webinar, I guess is what you would call it. Um, joined by you, you, joined by Ashley Ruse, uh, Beth Goins. Rouse. There you go. Rouse. I, I was going to just Owens. hand this whole part to you. Yeah, you should have just given me the names. Yeah, Ashley, Beth, and Prince. It was a great conversation, that's for sure. Thanks to Tom Lennon for inviting us, not only to the, you know, to the to the webinar itself, but to the the group. I'm a recent Carolina transplant, so I kind of landed with my feet uh, that one pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a really good conversation about our back, the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, you know, we've been dealing with our back since our first days in identity and access management. It's here this year. It'll be here next year, which goes with our theme of uh, what's hot at the end of the year. You know, what what happened in the past year? What's happening in the coming year? Uh, our back will be there. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I was kind of surprised, actually, how far along each of them were with their journeys and their organizations. And um, I haven't I haven't listened to the replay yet. So my hope is that I'll be able to turn it into an episode. Uh, in the future that we'll play, maybe in January. Uh, this is uh, most likely our last episode for the year. We usually take a few weeks off here between Christmas, New Year's, and sort of getting started in the new year, getting feet settled. Um, so we're going to talk about, I guess, kind of identity and retrospective, you know, things that happened uh, through the year 2022. What's it going to be remembered for? Maybe some predictions for next year. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, I got to listen to it. It was a fun conversation. I had a great time with it. Kind of emceed it and had a you know panel discussion and had some good interaction with the audience and uh, you know questions and stuff like that. So it was fun. Uh, I had a good time. You've gotten really good at that, man. I think it's uh, all your podcasting time. <laughs> yeah, put on. Uh, I, I can't do anything about the voice, but at least I was prepared. So I guess that's the probably the most important thing. So. Um, what else do we have going on? I know there's a couple things that I've been working on with uh, Identiverse. They're looking, uh, you know, still, I think the call for speakers is still open. And that's definitely a conference that you and I are going to try and hit uh, next year. Still open. Um, we'll put the link to the, um, put the link to the call to speakers in the show notes. Obviously, it's one of the biggest identity conferences of the year. Gartner is usually the other biggest conference of the year. And I think that, People need to be aware that that conference is taking place in March this year at a different location uh, near Dallas, Texas. Yeah. So usually Gartner is like the first week of December, kind of right after Thanksgiving. I'm not sure yet if it's smart to pull it forward. I think it is because there's probably more budget still available at that time versus towards the end of the year when people are like, okay, well, what can I spend my money on? Oh, there's a conference. Like, that's how we can use it. Which is also has its benefits because, hey, there's money left over. What are we going to spend it on? <laughs> Let's go send people to a conference. So it'll be interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, how that how that works out. But it's definitely, be aware, Gartner is much earlier this year. It is in March. I mean, the date change is big, but I think the location change is even bigger. It's been in Las Vegas for as long as I could remember. Now it's going to be in Dallas, Texas. Um, I'll enjoy 
that. I mean, I was kind of getting sick of Vegas my last visit. Nothing against Vegas or people from Vegas, but, you know, you can only stay there so long on the strip before you've had too much. I like Vegas, so we'll see. Uh, grape, grapevine, Texas. Here we come for, for Gartner. Uh, you and I are planning on being there, so... Um, so we got that going on. Um, we're gonna—I should say also—while we have our break going on, we're working on some pretty big stuff. So hopefully, people will stick around with us and come back when we're when we're back in January, uh, and hopefully, we'll have some some big announcements that we'll be able to make uh, for next year as well. Um, State of the Union when it comes to the podcast, we had another great year. Um, I could we can say that as we ended 2022, we have doubled our listeners again. Um, double of zero is, is still zero, but we actually have <laughs> listeners around the world. Thousands of folks tune in, which is absolutely nuts. Uh, this is the, you know, the third year that we've been doing this podcast and every year we've been doubling and it's purely through word of mouth. We have, you know, no budget other than whatever Jim and I decide to put into it and we don't do any advertising. So it's purely word of mouth and people sharing it. Um, I saw a stat the other day that we are in the top 10 of the most shared podcasts in the world for all podcasts, which is absolutely nuts. And we put out something like um, 2,600 minutes of content in 2022 alone. So if you think That's about like how much we've put out there, like where it's, it's the stat was like, we're in the top 3% of all content produced <laughs> from a podcast perspective. Yeah. That's a lot of content. I think one of the stats that jumped out at me the most was the uh, percentage of listeners who, actually subscribe to the podcast or follow the podcast. Um, I think it was what, 42%. So just kind of a reminder, if you're a regular listener, just stumbled across the podcast for the first time, go out there and subscribe to the podcast. It really will help you, you know, know when new episodes are out there. And uh, like Jeff kind of alluded to, we put a lot of content out there at least every week. Uh, We'll take a little break over the holiday then we'll be recording episode 200, which I think is a pretty major milestone. Yeah, we had some, we have some pretty interesting ideas of how that might work. So I think we'll probably hit 200 sometime in February or March, depending on sort of the cycle. But yeah, kind of a, another milestone for us. But yeah, definitely, the, you know, the one the the one thing that everyone can do to help us is hit that follow button or subscribe button that helps us out, you know, a lot. And obviously listening and sharing with with your friends or enemies. I don't care. You know, if you don't like somebody, and you're like, oh, these guys suck. Send it to somebody you hate. We don't care. <laughs> as long as you're listening, <laughs> that's all that matters. Um, OK, so that's where things stand at the end of the year for the podcast. What we've got coming up for a couple of, of weeks here while we take our break. We're going to close out this year with a recap of what should 2022 be remembered for from an identity perspective and then get into some predictions for the future. We've brought back our friend Jared Brennan. He's a principal consultant and VCSO, virtual CISO with Side Channel back onto the show. Welcome back, Jared. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be talking to you guys again. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, This is going to be episode like 192 or 93, probably 193. And the last time you were with us was episode uh, 60 back in September of 2020. So we already know your origin story from an identity perspective. And if you don't know it, go back and listen to episode 60. We're not going to make you rehash it all over again. But what's been going on in the last couple of years, you know, with yourself and and some things that you've been working on? Yeah, back in 2020, I would have still been with SailPoint. Um, I was in an advisory role there having conversations like this, uh, but I had an opportunity to 
move into the startup world and help focus on uh, both working with a startup and then also helping startups build security programs uh, that align with how quickly they're moving, that align with the risk appetite of leadership. Very different from what you see in the large megacorp enterprise, but all the principles are still the same. The foundations are the same. It's just finding that right balance. So um, it, I've also spent a little bit of time playing around with Web3. Um, I do have some cryptocurrency. I'm still holding my Dogecoin, hoping it'll pop back up. Whatever's <laughs> left, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever's left. But uh, I've, I've really um, landed on, on blockchain as a technology with tremendous untapped potential. Um, and so I, I want to learn. I, I want to do this handle and I want to build my own dApps. I want to uh, work with other folks who are playing around in that space because uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, and I'm teaching like a madman. Uh, I've been working with LinkedIn Learning for a few years now, and I think I've got almost 30 courses in the library, some courses on AppSec, uh, courses on uh, I've got a building cybersecurity for startups uh, course out there. I've got a course in ethics that they actually published to Spotify. So uh, I can go to Spotify and see my picture blows my mind. Um, but I'm, I'm really digging that. And then the, the work I'm doing now with side channel, uh, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a VC. So for multiple startups. So I have some companies that just want a few hours of security leadership a week. And then they've got resources internally to help uh, keep the, the program growing. And I've got other companies that have uh, no formal security program. And they reach out and say, hey, where do we start? How do, how do we actually execute? How do we get to a point that we can meet contract obligations and uh, you know, protect our IP? And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's more my vibe. It's more my style. That startup space is, uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's stressful, but it's, it's the kind of stress I want. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty swell. And you've put out a lot of content as well. Like you mentioned that all the LinkedIn learning, I'll, I'll put a link to that in our show notes. So people can kind of check that out. Um, it is cool to see people contributing sort of to the knowledge of the universe <laughs> when it comes to stuff yeah. and easy to understand and easy to kind of grok to use an older term, <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> and pull into it. So I think it's pretty cool. I'm glad you touched on the VCCO thing because, you know, I think it, sometimes it's a little bit of a mystery. Like, what does a virtual CISO do? Are you a hologram, right? Do you just appear <laughs> out of the blue? Like, how does this work? Are you like Cortana yeah. for company? <laughs> I, I I dig that as a Halo fan. Love yeah, the reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it, it's funny. I personally prefer the term fractional because the the reason startups, and it's usually startups who make the investment, they, they just don't have the... Uh, the capital, the, the money set aside to invest in uh, a full-time security leader. But they also don't necessarily need somebody for 40, 50 hours a week. They may just need somebody who's more advisory or somebody who can step in and manage vendors or help them select the right technology or make a decision about what the, the process should look like uh, to, again, strike that balance. So um, it's in some companies it's it's still kind of army of one where you know you're rolling up your sleeve and you're running burp scans and you're uh going through vulnerability scan reports and you're building out security awareness training uh at other companies um you know i 
I have one where I'm in more of a mentorship role where they have a, a security leader at the company and it's that person's first security leadership role. And if I'm having conversations with the executive leadership team and conversations with the board about the alignment between security and, and business and really being able to demonstrate the business value of a security program instead of security existing for its own sake. Um, I'm bringing all that experience back and mentoring that individual so that they can step into the role because a, a VC so gig isn't meant to be permanent. It's meant to go in, help them get their feet under them. And then when they're ready to leave the nest and fly on their own, you step away and, and you go help another client. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's a world that, uh, I didn't realize how much I dig it until I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a cool gig for sure, and I think there's so many ways that you know that type of talent can be tapped and enjoyed and learned from. Right, you can be more public facing, right, in that type of role. You can also be more behind the scenes, right, the guy behind the guy, and really kind mm -hmm. of setting you know someone up to be successful within their organization. So it's an interesting role. I certainly I certainly dig it because. You know, I, I actually had a conversation today with a company where, you know, their security person was an architect. And that was that was just what they had. Right. It wasn't right. like a formal position or anything like that. And eventually, you know, this person took on more and more security, you know, responsibilities, but was never really formally trained or brought up in that sort of environment. So they had to get, you know, a little bit of a crash course. And I think this is a way to kind of accelerate that side of that side of uh, uh, learning. Yeah. One of the courses I've got on LinkedIn learning and it's. um quickly becoming my most popular course is soft skills for information security professionals, because so many of us have grown up tech. I'm, I'm a nerd through and through guys, you know that. Um, but the ability to talk to a non-technical audience and the ability to step away from the details and uh, communicate what we do in a way that makes sense to them and helps get them on board and you know, gets everybody moving in the same direction. It's a whole skill set that un unfortunately we, we don't get that exposure to when we're sitting down reviewing logs and configuring tools. We just don't. Um, and so uh, you, you're right. You've, you, that architect, um, I've, I've worked with those folks. I've, I've been that guy. Uh, and the ability to, to talk to somebody about what's it like to, to sell an idea to an executive who doesn't understand any of the acronyms we're using. Um, it, it's a whole different skill set. But again, it's exciting. It's like you said, contributing to knowledge, helping people grow, helping people advance in their own careers. That's the kind of stuff when I get to the end of my life, I'll look back and say, yeah, that was time well spent. Yeah. And the, the soft skills are important. Jim knows, <laughs> which I preach, like being, you know, just to my, you know, the internal teams and, and stuff like that about you've got to be able to articulate what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, it, there's certainly a natural gift to it. Uh, you know, some people are more comfortable in a public speaking environment or presenting or it may be, but it is absolutely critical for the folks out there. If you're if you're, you know, just getting into this career, I would definitely invest the time in being able to figure out what is your voice when it comes to articulating your message? How do you deliver it? How do you present it? How do you make it easily understood? Because if you can't explain it, you're not going to get the approval to move forward. You're not going to get the funding. Nothing's going to happen. Yep. I know, Jim, you and I have had conversations about this in the past and stuff like that. So um, I don't know if there's any words of wisdom you want to give to people out there when it comes to you know, the articulation of, of their issues and what they're trying to solve. I mean, there are a lot of communication skills 
um, that I think make you a better communicator. But I think the the key is you you said like there's natural skills maybe, and I do agree with that. Some people are more mat- naturally talented with communicating, but I think it's one of those things. Even if you are naturally talented, work at it. Get opportunities to speak and tell your story. If they're not naturally occurring, look for a group that you can join where you can practice articulating your points and and writing and things like that. Because I do think they are natural to some people, but unless you're using those skills, they're going to soften. Yeah, if you had told my high school self that I would be, you know, hosting a podcast <laughs> later on and be comfortable speaking in front of an audience or, you know, microphone or on camera, I would have been like, you are absolutely nuts. Like, you are crazy. There's no way that's happening. But um, yeah, it's it's an important skill, and I'm, I'm glad that it's getting some airtime. And Jared, you bringing it up, I think is it's really important for people to kind of think about. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about identity and access management, and when it comes to the year 2022, what it's going to be remembered for. Um, there's a lot of things I'm sure that we could probably pick from, and the way that we're going to kind of do this is just kind of go person by person and kind of just discuss what that might look like. Uh, Jared, being the guest of honor today, uh, we're going to start with you. What is what is the I am thing that 2022 is going to be remembered for? I know we don't have a solution yet, but I firmly believe we're going to look at what's happening in, you know, p- pick your buzzword, right? Web3, blockchain, DAO, whatever you want to use. This notion of decentralizing technology, we, we had everything on-prem in the data center, and then we took everything and... Uh, started building it out in somebody else's data center. And now we're saying, well, wait a minute, do, do we need to keep all that identity stuff in there? Or can we make it the, the consumer's responsibility, the end user's responsibility to own and manage their own identity? Where what we saw with bring your own device when, when uh, the iPhone dropped and people started bringing them into work, this notion of bring your own identity, uh, of self-sovereign identity, um, we've, we've been talking about it for some time, but I, I think there were some pretty big things that happened in the blockchain space this year that are, well, and the tech space in general that are, are going to be seen as catalyst for an actual working, very widely adopted decentralized identity solution. And w- one of those is the, the FTX fallout is the disaster that is the, the crash of that exchange. Uh, and when you you look at the NFT bros, you look at Board Ape Yacht Club, and you look at everybody thinking, well, blockchain is just owning a picture, and, and that's what most people outside of the space think the technology can do. Um, you know, it it led as crazy as it is to a lot of money floating around. I've I've seen news coming out of Miami, who was trying to be the crypto capital of the world, where they were seeing millions of dollars a year on their nightclub scene. And now they're lucky to see 10K over three months. And, you know, as as all of this is bottomed out and people have said, well, well, wait a minute, maybe uh, NFTs aren't uh, the thing. Um, I think it's giving us an opportunity to look at the true capability of blockchain, of the compute capability of the code that you can build into the chain. Not It's not just a distributed ledger. You can build this this automation and you you have the ability to um, move away from what we hold on to in cybersecurity and identity as 
is confidentiality is one of the, the three legs of the stool, right? It's part of the CIA triad or the AIC, depending on, on where you cut your teeth. Um, and so I, I think with the, the collapse of FTX and uh, um, what we're seeing right now with, with crypto prices dropping down, um, if you also pair that with the tech layoffs, which it's, it's been devastating for a lot of individuals, we're seeing on average uh, 10% of the workforce when a company says, hey, we're in the tech space, we overcommitted, we didn't count on the pandemic, there was some other factor and now we can't sustain our business unless we reduce our workforce, which is their polite way of saying, uh, put people out on the street. Uh, but they, they like, if I look at Meta, they, they'll say, well, but we're going to give severance so that they've got a few months to get their feet under them. You've also got a lot of wicked smart people who are going through uh, a, a very adverse time in their lives right now who are going to be left with a sour taste in their mouth when it comes to counting on big megacorp or big uh, company to uh, provide my, my bread and butter, my, my monthly uh, biweekly income. And I think a lot of these, these folks are going to say, you know what, if I've got severance, I've got a few months to play around. If they've wanted to explore projects and if they're in that block three web, cha- uh, web three blockchain space, um, then there's a, a, a combination of events here that they're coming together, right? Convergence that uh, I, I think it's going to lead to some really, really cool stuff in the, uh, the decentralized identity space. You know, it's interesting that you mention that as sort of like the thing to be remembered for. I, I'm, I'm thinking about Twitter and the dumpster fire that has become in the last <laughs> month and the exodus that's taking place to things like Mastodon, for example. Right, right. Um, here's the challenge I have with this. It is, it is not easy. I went to sign up for a Mastodon account and I was like, okay, what server do I join? How do I yeah. find my identity people? <laughs> right. And that's pretty much what I use Twitter for is for obviously the podcast and connecting with identity people. We have a pretty, you know, a decent following there. I've noticed not as many people posting on Twitter. Uh, so I'm like, okay, well, where are we at next? Right. Mastodon is, you know, do I need to go and find what server people are connected to? Because even though there's this whole concept of federation and it really doesn't, at the end of the day, probably doesn't matter so much what server you're on. I still think it's important because it becomes part of the address, right? I don't want to sign up mm-hmm. for like, you know, at, I don't know, I'll pick on Hotmail, <laughs> at Hotmail. <laughs> hey, what's wrong you with know, that? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, to show my age, right? Or on that, I would probably want to have, be part of a, of a cool server or something that's more reflective of the persona that I'm trying to create. And I just don't think, I don't think we're there yet. It's not easy enough for the average consumer to take advantage of these types of services. You have to be almost like an expert to be able to consume some of this stuff. Agree. Absolutely. And it's very much tip of the spear, but that's what, you know, when I say what's the, the catalyst, right? When, when we get five, 10 years down the line and we look at how we engage with one another online, with how we establish trust with people, with how, we enable people in third world countries or, or countries with a, a very low standard of living to engage in digital economies and, and participate as digital citizens. We're going to be using decentralized technology that leverages blockchain to do that. And we're going to look at some of the things happening right now. The people who are, are looking at all the Mastodon servers, scratching their head, thinking, I, I don't know, I'm just going to roll the dice and pick one. Right. 
those are the people who are at the vanguard who are going to lead the way into this this new way of doing identity. So that's that's what I I look at this year. I I'm right there with you. I I think uh, you know there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Um, but I also think if you talk to folks who work in app dev and you look at this uh, this approach to DevOps that was um, verboten when we look at traditional waterfall methodology, you mean you're just going to automate all the the right published tests and nobody's going to sit down and review it? And now it's it's standard, right? If you're not moving that quickly, you're not keeping up and you're not competing. Um, and that's when it was new, it was scary. It was different. People didn't know how to manage it. When you were trying to secure it, you were uh, uh, at a loss of, of how you're going to be able to demonstrate compliance and security when the code's already published to prod before you even knew they were writing it. Um, but now it's it's already become commonplace. And I think we're going to see that same pattern. But I'm, I'm right there with you, Jeff. Yeah, we're, we're very early in that. Jim, what do you think about uh, blockchain and sort of its its role and where it stands today? Especially, I guess, in relation to identity is probably where we want to take it. But <laughs> well, that's where you want to take it. But I actually have a <laughs> take few comments want. where, yeah, no, I was listening to Jared because I was thinking, you know, we had that event back in like 06 through 08 time frame where the housing market collapsed. And those of us who owned houses at that time or maybe were laid off or suffered some other kind of financial catastrophe. We'll never forget that. But I was listening to a podcast about a year ago, and it just burned into my brain because the guy was saying, you know, if you have cash, you're, stu- you're stupid. You need to deploy that cash because cash is becoming less valuable and, you know, everything else is going up in price. And, Okay, theoretically, that's right. But are you going to be the one smart enough to jump off the merry-go-round before it starts spinning a thousand miles an hour? In other words, because if you were in 06, 07 and had no cash and all you had were these assets, they collapsed overnight, basically, and you couldn't get out of them. So always have cash. That's what I learned through that event. And I think what you're saying is that this event that's happening now is going to burn something into the psyches of those people. We just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, no, that's a good way to look at it, Jim. They, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so my second point was on um, Bit, or I'm sorry, on the blockchain, and I was going to go specifically to cryptocurrency. And I think the way it's structured right now, it's um, like the Wild West. I mean, Bitcoin went from what, $60,000 to... in the course of a year. And that is not a good formula for a currency, maybe for a gamble or for a bet. But the way it kind of like blew up from nothing to this huge amount per coin and back down again, it's just, it's not a good store of value in that case. It's an investment maybe, but I think for it to become a store of value, it needs more stability. So you hear things about maybe the government getting control of it. I'm not sure I'm like 100% on board with that because I do think that one of the advantages is that it's not run by one government. Um, However, I think for it to have a future as a currency, it's got to be more stable. And I think that's probably the path to get there. So the last thing in terms of the technology for identity and wallets and decentralized identity. I mean, I'm on board with it. I think it's a great idea. I think 
people should be in control of their identity and shouldn't have to sign up for some third party with their own privacy policy to, you know, manage your identity and basically spy on you everywhere you go. So, um, that, yeah, that's my feeling. I think that's Uh, the part that I struggle with though, is that is, so we can say, okay, it's self-sovereign identity, but who's running that network? You're still beholden to whoever that network holder is. Is it going to be the government, a private entity, some so sort here, of I'm public challenge you on that, Jeff. Please do it, because the, I, I I want an answer. <laughs> the the core co- or one of the core concepts in the the blockchain space is the concept of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, which isn't a network run by somebody. It's a a different way of thinking. And it's it's hard to wrap your head around it. When you sit down and say, how is this going to work if nobody's in charge? This is destined to, to fail. This is not going to function. And then you see these, uh, these projects, these experiments working and functioning. And I, I know I've, I've got opinions, guys, that go way beyond tech. I've, I've got social theory, economic theory, and, and I tie it all together when I, I look at things like this. And I'm also a parent of three adult children, 18, 20, and 22. And I have seen the, the generational differences in what's important to one generation versus the next and how they, uh, they approach problem solving. Um, I've got you know books I could talk about that I've, I've read on the subject that uh, really helped me better articulate the, the ideas, the things I was seeing and the things I wanted to understand more. And that notion of, of a, a decentralized autonomous organization, of taking the responsibility of proving that you're Jeff and proving that you're Jim uh, and proving that the transactions that are being executed in your name uh, are authorized by you, the right person. Um, with a, a distributed ledger technology, we've got kind of this, uh, I don't want to call it groupthink, right? Not Orwellian, right? But, but it, it does change the model significantly. And if, uh, if we start doing it, I mean, I, I want to point out, Jim, that, we accept little green pieces of paper here in the U.S. as uh, legal tender, as as currency, as I'm going to give you this piece of paper for that food or for this house or for this vehicle, and you'll accept it. There was a time where that, that just wasn't uh, the way we did things. And we introduced the concept of currency. We've got central banks. And, and the system that we have now came out of uh, changes in how we interacted with one another. We're at the cusp of one of those changes uh, based on the advances in technology and what we can do now with technology that wasn't even conceivable hundreds of years ago. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't want to ramble too much guys, but this, this notion of decentralized autonomous organizations uh, can solve that problem, Jeff, but it's not going to be easy and it's, it's not always going to be pretty. But I think we'll get there. I'm going to keep an eye out for it. I think I think that's one of the biggest questions that me as a consumer and as someone sort of in the know, right, in the identity side of how this should work is who's where is my day going to be and what who's going to have access to it? Yeah. And I think just kind of understanding it's almost like I'm going to go back to Mastodon, right? Did I pick the right server <laughs> to join or not? I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. Let's move along here. Jim, how about yourself? What is an IAM thing uh, that 2022 is going to be remembered for? So I put this question out on LinkedIn. I got some great feedback from some of our 
I think listeners of the podcast. So Chris and Benkatash basically said one was and and Kirk Greening. So three people basically said meeting you and I and getting back to you in person, which I thought those were well. I really love the first que- first answer, but you know, getting back to in person, you know, especially like conferences and things like that. Um, Jake and Fridenity, our buddy Fridenity, um, said Jake said the increase in credential related breaches. Fry said so many breaches of Australian citizens' data, and then he put a sad face. So. <laughs> what I was going to say is kind of the opposite of those in a way, um, because I was going to say what happened to all the ransomware attacks. It seemed like 2020, 2021 were just like one head, like every week we'd have a headline to talk about the $10 million in Bitcoin. Somebody paid out because their company got ransomware. And I know they're still happening, but they're not as front page as they were. I think that I feel pretty safe making that argument because I follow information security news and yeah, I see them, but it's usually like, Oh, this, this hospital chain near, you know, Akron, Ohio got ransomware and not to make light of that. That's important, but it's not like, you know, uh, the DOD got ransomware or something like that. Right. Or some company paid out $40 million in Bitcoin because they got ransomware which we did see happen, I think, in 2021. So anyway, that was my answer. How about you, so, Joe? It, you know, it's interesting that you, you bring up ransomware because when I was thinking about this question, I was like, well, ransomware is still a thing. It's still happening. And then I got to thinking about it a little bit more. It's okay, well, why, why aren't we talking about it as much? And as, why is it not making as much news? And I think it's because we've gotten numb to it. It happens with so much frequency now that it's just like any other you know, identity data breach okay, who got breached this week or today? Or thank you very much, Capital One, for telling me that my email again was found on the dark net. Of course it was. It's, you know, I mean, there's like just so much going on. It's like, okay, we've gotten used to it. So I don't know if, it, I, don't think that, I don't think the numbers bear out that there are less ransomware attacks. I think if anything, it's the same and continues to grow. What I think is the airtime that it's given and the numbness that has accompanied with it. You know, you keep I'm also wondering. I'm also wondering if companies are defending better. In other words, they're blocking them more, or the attackers are busy doing something else or directing their efforts somewhere else. And I'm, I'm specifically getting at the war in Ukraine. So we knew a lot of the attacks were were emanating out of Ukraine or Russia, and with everything that's going on there with the war, I'm wondering if that has any kind of influence and. You know, you might be right. The numbers might be, not be down, but they're not, you know, I don't think they're the headline, the big one. So mm-hmm. uh, just wondering. Well, what let's do you tap think, the BC. Yeah, let's tap the BC. So in the room here, like if you're advising somebody like where, where it's, what's the stance on ransomware right now? Of all the clients I work with, nobody's talking about it. N- none of the leaders at the organizations are reading about it in the journal, right? Or the times they're not saying, Jared, are, are we prepared for this? Now, I'm, I'm still driving the point home of identity-centric security, uh, not only uh, creating backups, but testing them, doing tabletops of your BCDR plan, your incident response plan. I mean, that's standard fare with every client. 
But it's uh, that's a really good point, Jim. It's it's not making the 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 news that business leaders are reading, and I, I think that um, uh, you're onto something there with also the global activity. None of this happens in a vacuum; it's all connected. And if if we had folks who were uh, targeting U.S. based companies who now have uh, bigger priorities based on on what they're in the midst of, then uh, that that would definitely um, account for for that drop. It could be that. It also could be that you know maybe the West is seen in a better light by folks who I don't I don't know. I mean I don't. I'm trying to get inside the head, but certainly the U.S. and the West has gotten behind Ukraine in that situation. Yeah. No, it's it's really insightful because it, because I don't have folks asking me about it and I'm not seeing those stories and I'm I'm like you I've got my feedly that has all the the people I want to follow all the outlets I follow and uh it's crickets when it comes to ransomware and I hadn't even noticed. Yeah, so it's it, wild. It is interesting how much it's faded away as so I think it just hasn't gotten as much airtime. Is yeah. you know I didn't really think about it from the I guess the current, you know, Russia Ukraine thing that I guess just like any other business there are a certain number of resources and if those resources are tied up elsewhere, you know, they've been shifted to a different project. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um let's see. Okay, for my myself, I, I thought about this a little bit. And I'm going to go back to April when I was at RSA and I walked around the show floor and I was like, okay, it's the year 2022, zero trust everything. Like everything is a zero trust product. Everything has something to do with zero trust security. And, you know, we've got to solve folks. All you have to do is buy this one thing that will solve your zero trust, you know, issues and you'll be good to go. And I feel like it's the year that zero trust sort of jumped the shark. People kind of got, you know, got drowned in that marketing of what is actually zero trust in the real world and how does it actually work and all the various components that actually go into a true zero trust network. And it got obfuscated by the identity marketing machine of multiple companies out there trying to be part of that wave. That's what I'm thinking is for, at least for me, what 2022 has been about has been the absolute uh, battering of the zero trust name (laughs) against the, the altar of marketing. Yeah. What do you think, Jared? I had a chance to hear uh, John Kinderbag. Um, on a podcast or a a webinar talking about um, how the idea that he presented of zero trust, what over a decade ago is so misunderstood now. And he, uh, if I recall correctly, has a somewhat low opinion of the NIST special publication on, on zero trust. And I've, I've worked with product teams and companies. I've, I've been in advisory roles. I've worked with sales teams and I know what it's like quarter to quarter when they, they're trying to win logos, they're trying to close deals, time kills deals. So what's the quickest way they can get there? They know that this zero trust buzzword uh, clicks. It, it resonates with uh, business and tech leaders, or it did. Um, and so everybody internally would say, okay, how do we support zero trust? And you know the, the message you get from Kinderbag is there is no zero trust technology. That's not the point. That's not the idea. But the marketing teams are saying, if we can find a way to publish some collateral that says our product 
enables zero trust, then when that executive who says we need zero trust is saying, I will give you budget if you can deploy zero trust, um, it's, it's getting calls with sales teams and then that's closing deals and that's driving that sales marketing conversation. I, I think you're spot on there, Jeff, that uh, it's just, it's noise. Um, it's a, it's a terrific, terrific concept. And I'm, I'm right there with John that, um, you know, that, that approach of, of locking everything down and then only opening up access when you need it is, I mean, we used to call it principal least privilege. We, uh, even when we deployed LPARs on the mainframe back, I say back in the day, I know there's shops who are still running mainframes, but the, the notion of an LPAR was to create that segregation. They're, they're, these are all uh, ideas or concepts that help you get toward that that panacea, right, of zero trust. But uh, but yeah, um, sales and marketing uh, is not helping the case. Jim, what are your thoughts on zero trust in my diatribe? I think your diatribe is right. I mean, I think it's like become overused, and people are sick of it. And when people get sick of it, it's like liberty liberty mutual commercials, right? It's just like, oh no, I hate this already. Uh, which is quite sad, actually, because I think um, Zero Trust is one of the most important security architectural principles that has come out like during my lifetime. I think it makes so much sense, um, but it's – and it's, the funny part was like it's been around for a long time and had no play, and then within the last two years got too much play to the point that people are sick of hearing about it don't want to hear about it anymore. And, and maybe I'm being a little bit too over the top here, but I think that's sad. I think that's a net loss. Well, maybe it'll be like bell bottoms. It'll just come around again in a few years and uh, <laughs> it'll be back in style. Um, all right, let's go to predictions for 2023. Jared, you're up first. What's a bold prediction that you've got for us in the IEM world for 2023? I think... And I'm, I'm going to tie a few ideas here, but again, this, this is where I think we're headed, guys. Um, what we're seeing happening right now in quantum computing is going to uh, have a downstream impact on how we do identity and how the way we approach that idea of identity-centric security is going to be built out. Like I, I just read a story about a physicist creating a wormhole. Uh, an Einstein Rosen bridge. I mean, this is 1935 is when Einstein and Rosen pitched this idea uh, of a, of what we've come to call wormhole technology. And the scientists, physicists who did it said, "Look, it's the crummiest, tiniest wormhole, but it's a wormhole. We we observe the qubits and and we well, we can recreate it. Right? It's it's legit." Um, there was a book I read some years back by uh, Arthur C. Clarke right? 2001. And um, uh, Stephen Baxter co-authored this book called The Light of Other Days. Uh, this book was published something like 20 years ago. And uh, they present the idea that scientists create wormhole technology and we start leveraging it for communication. And then they go on to talk about the, the ramifications with society and uh, economies and such. But I, I had already earlier this year been... Um, making my, my rounds at, at regional conferences and events talking about uh, rethinking cybersecurity in the quantum age, because we're seeing a lot of activity with 
post-quantum cryptography. And, you know, just like I was saying with, with blockchain, it's a different way of, of thinking, a different way of approaching the, the, the problem and then the solutions to the problem. Uh, with the, the vetting that, that NIST has done around post-quantum cryptography algorithms, they've been at it for five years and, and they've been hammering away at these, uh, it's just, it's different maths, like lattice-based math. It's, it's not very large prime numbers anymore. It's changing how we protect data at rest and how we protect it at transit. And if we're using quantum computing for good, uh, cyber criminals with access to quantum computing technology are going to be throwing it at data that's been encrypted with traditional encryption algorithms. Um, and so as we have to figure out how do we protect data, how do we encrypt data, we're, we're also trying to think of um, what, do, what does that CAA triad mean going forward? And do we actually have to treat confidential data that, that we call confidential today as confidential in the future? Because if, if I've got data that I'm encrypting with a 1,028-bit RSA key, um, a quantum computer with reasonable error-free uh, qubits that is able to churn through very large data sets very quickly is going to crack that in minutes. A, a 2048 key, which if, if you, you're listening, um, CISA has a post-quantum cryptography roadmap. Bare minimum, bump your keys up to 2048 because it buys you more time. It's going to take a little more time to, to crack those keys, but that data, we're, we're not going to be able to protect it in the way that, that we protect it today. And if I go back to my comments about blockchain, if, if we had a technology that I could publish my social, my, my nine-digit social security number in plain text and say, this does not have to be confidential data anymore. We don't have to encrypt it. We don't have to protect it. Because what I'm doing through decentralized identity and through blockchain-enabled technologies, through the automation enabled through the compute power within a, a blockchain uh, deployment, um, that's the right right word for it. Um, I can control when people use my social. When somebody wants to run credit, when somebody goes to apply for unemployment, when somebody goes to take out a loan, at that moment, at that point in time, the combination of, of Web3 blockchain-based technology, and I think we're still going to see this blend of Web2, Web3, right? The, the way we, we use tech today, uh, internet-based technologies. If I can at that point in time get a notification, Jared, do I have your permission to take this action? And I can provide that validation that yes, I'm Jared, and yes, I said it's okay. All these processes we have around freezing and unfreezing credit and about the, the car dealership running your credit against all three agencies when you want to uh, drive a car off the lot, um, it changes. And so I, I think that the the quantum post-quantum impact on uh, encryption technology and communication technology, because there's a lot of uh, impact in the IoT space, is going to drive development for these people. And, and this is, again, that convergence. People who have this window of time to say, look, I'm passionate about this. I grew up in a world where I don't know what, what the future is going to look like, right? I don't have a lot of certainty of whether or not I'm going to be able to pay rent or whether or not I'm going to uh, have the job that I'm in now, um, who will sit down and, and start putting together solutions that are not profit-driven. 
they're driven by uh, the opportunity to better society. And it's, it's like the open source revolution uh, all over again, but, but with, with, a, um, with this blockchain-centric technology. So I really think that, that what we see in quantum is going to have that impact on uh, different ways of doing things so that we don't have to protect all the data that we protect today. Now, it's not going to address everything. If I look at um, military operations and I look at encrypted data that talks about informants and uh, contacts, um, that data will have value forever. Because once that data is decrypted, that if there's a, uh, a regime, if, if there's a, a ruling power that has a grudge and they want to take it out on the people who supported their adversary, then they'll wait. And, and that, I don't, I don't have a quick answer for that one. And that to me is the bigger, scarier thing because that's loss of life, right? That's, that's a whole different ball game than credit cards or socials. Um, but there's a whole lot of data that we are just, uh, we're putting a lot of time and money and effort into keeping secret, into pretending that nobody else is going to see it until we have another data breach story. And, oh, we had the OPM hack. We had the solar winds. We had, we had so many uh, exposures where uh, we, we just have to solve the problem with different thinking. And I think quantum is going to drive blockchain, which is going to drive uh, some of that um, that generational shift. You, you, you shift. You probably heard the, the saying, um, hard times, and I know this is sexist, uh, but I'm, I'm using like, like quote from the guy who said it, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create, uh, what is it, hard times. Hard times. <laughs> yeah, so, so you've got this, this generational cycle and a couple of the books I've read, um, The Fourth Turning, which is uh, Howe and Strauss, they approached it from uh, a historian perspective generational theory and and looking at how uh, one generation to the next influences things like technology. And, um, it, well, and then I saw uh, Ray Dalio's book, uh, Principles for Dealing with a Changing World Order, uh, where he did it from an economist perspective. And uh, Dalio's Bridgewater, right? Uh, incredibly successful hedge fund, uh, 40 years in that space. And he landed on that same pattern of these different generations and that's the other other uh, concept that, that's converging here is while we see advances in quantum, we see blockchain technology kind of finding legitimate use cases and people who understand the full potential. You've also got an entire generation of people who are looking at their futures saying, I would rather build something that's going to make life better for people around me than make uh, a profit. I don't want to be a billionaire. I don't even necessarily want to be a millionaire. I want enough money to take care of me and my own. And then I want to put this thing out in the world that's going to make everybody's life better, even people I will never meet. And as all these things come together, uh, you're going to find identity makes that happen. Because without uh, that notion of decentralized identity, we can't participate in these digital economies. We can't participate in these processes. And so it, to me, it's, I know that's a long winded. I appreciate yeah, you guys good, sit good. here and rant. I, I, I've Go got some it. thoughts. On, yeah, I've got some yeah. thoughts on the because you talked about post quantum and pre quantum. My concern is, well, I guess it depends on how you define those. But my concern is that in between, it's where there's some quantum and others that are non quantum. And if there's commercially based quantum computers, 
but a lot of people, a lot of organizations are still running non-quantum computers and you end up in this in between, right? You've got every phone in the world is all of a sudden not capable of encrypting his data well enough to stop those with the quantum computer. And here's where I wanted to go with this because that potentially has major societal impact in terms of it could erode trust in technology very quickly where I, that's what currency is based on. It's based on trust. It's based on yeah. that. If you give me that paper for that, for the food I gave you, I can turn around and give that paper to somebody else and get something else that I need. Right. And whether it's, cryptocurrency or paper currency or you know some numbers on a screen there's a trust factor involved now all of a yeah. sudden the computer world goes to hell in a handbasket all the data is being broken that that's my concern is that in between stage and it feels like that's got to come right because it's not like every computer at the flip of a switch is all going to become quantum and that's a, a really good call out jim and one thing I'll share, when I started digging into quantum computing, what it, it means to actually use it, one of the things that I learned is that while quantum computers are great at tackling very large data sets, they're garbage when it comes to watching videos on YouTube. You do not want a quantum phone. So I, I don't know that we're going to see a tipping point where, where we suddenly, everything has to be quantum. Um, but I, I think that that period of time where we've got traditional digital, uh, you know, ones and zeros uh, computers, uh, there's still a, a, a use for them and, and it's not going to change. It's not going to go away. But in this, this subset where we've got ones, zeros, and then ones and zeros at the same time, the whole notion of superposition in quantum computing is going to have a very specific use case. And we're going to see, um, I mean, threat actors will use it to try to decrypt data. But as we have uh, security vendors who are, are pulling in more and more data uh, for logging and monitoring to try to determine what normal looks like and can we detect a threat actor, um, the ability to go through that data and very quickly make a decision, yes, this, this is somebody using Jeff's account. He's not in North Korea right now trying to log into his Office 365 account. The, the speed at which they'll be able to identify and respond and the accuracy with which you'll be able to do that. Like that's a very specific use case for, for quantum, but I, I really think that the decryption is the one that has everybody's attention, but I don't think we're going to see it on, on smartphones. And I thought the same thing until I, I'll see if I can find the video and, and share the link with you, Jeff, you can put it in the show notes of um, uh, a scientist in uh, maybe Finland. Uh, who knows a hell of a lot more about quantum than I ever, ever will. Uh, and he laid it out pretty simply. And I, I sat back and said, huh, okay, that makes sense. I get it now. But I, your, your point, just, I'm sorry, Jeff, one last point. Don't even get me started on artificial intelligence and deep fakes. And the fact that I can throw a random uh, sentence into Dolly or Dolly 2 and have it generate all this AI art that has the art community shook. And we're going to see, uh, you can use AI to do copywriting, which has the marketing community wondering, am I going to have a job if they can replace me with this, uh, this website that writes better copy than I do? Um, and your, your notion of, yeah, we need that trust. Um, we don't even know when we're on LinkedIn and we're looking at profile pictures, if that's a real person 
or not, because a lot of the, the fakes on LinkedIn are AI generated profile pics. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot, uh, a lot that you said there about trust that, uh, it, we could go a lot deeper into that. I, I, I got sad and scared when you were talking early on, Jared, <laughs> and here's why you talked about, okay, I'm going to be able to control when, you know, where, where my data is being used and how it's going to be used and, you know, get notified when someone's using it for a loan and blah, blah, blah. And I immediately went to, we already have that problem today with MFA, MFA fatigue, getting spammed with text messages, push notifications, you know, whatever it may be. And it's a, it's, it's a known thing at this point where, you know, if you, if you send enough, you know, faulty, you know, or bad, bad uh, second factor requests, someone will press okay on it. And I got thinking about that too. I was like, oh no, here we go again. I'm going to get spammed with, hey, your SSN was used here, blah, blah, blah. Or, hey, you know what? Do you want to connect to this bank account? And it's going to come, 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 come through. And there will be a certain set of the population that at some point, just to make their, to, to stop the headache, will hit, yeah, okay. And it's either because they don't know, know, you know, better or not. And I'm sure there'll be hopefully better safeguards in that spot, but I was sad there for a moment. <laughs> no, that's, it's a good point, Jeff. I mean, anybody can go out to sign up for a Google voice number and then they don't have to work hard to spoof. They have a legitimate VoIP number mm-hmm. uh, that they can use to send text and, and pretend to be somebody else. Um, what I'm hoping, and, and I firmly believe that someone will solve this problem, is that the, the verification that the person I'm interacting with is really who I think they are. We can solve that with this distributed ledger. If there are enough, enough sources that all say, yeah, this is really Jeff, and this is really Jim, and, and that's who's talking to who, then we don't have fake profiles, and we don't have MFA notices coming from somebody that we, we didn't uh, allow. Um, and I, I know that's not the whole problem, the notion of who can trigger the request on the chain. If we have people who understand this a lot better than I do in the weeds, building a decentralized application that has that trust built in from the core, from, from the ground up, right? And then get to that. It's, it's not zero trust. Maybe it's, it's true trust, right? I'm going yeah. Patent pending. We need a better, um, yeah, we better name like negative <laughs> trust or. But, but then we we can build that, and and I say that because if you look at what computers used to look like in the fifties, where they took up entire floors of metropolitan office buildings, and now I've got a computer that has access all over the world that fits in the palm of my hand, we solved that problem. I say we. People smarter than me solved that problem. It took them a minute. It took a lot of trial and error, but they solved it. And the, the problem that you're identifying right now needs to be at the top of the list, right? This is a use case. We, we need trust to ensure that people can't exploit the MFA fatigue attack, that they can't um, abuse this system, that decentralized identity really proves who we are to one another. Um, and if they build it in from the ground up, then it it may take a, a couple of decades, but we'll get there. And and we're seeing it right now. We're seeing the the cusp of it. So we're running long, but I'm enjoying the conversation. <laughs> so we're going to keep going. Um, and I one one little programming note: we are actually are heard in the Republic of Korea. We actually have listeners there. <laughs> so which is absolutely crazy for for our podcast. Jim, um, what is your prediction your bold prediction for 2023 I want to start with, with 
I want to start with the fact that um, that post I talked about, David Stromer uh, responded uh, that his prediction was decentralized ID as well as verifiable credentials. He's in the banking industry and he's looking at, look, it really comes down to trust. So everything that Jared's been talking about, I think, is right up the alley of what David brought up. So I think we talked about that enough. I'm going to go on the more tactical end of the spectrum. Jake and Fridentity were thinking the same thing as me, which is this is the year of passwordless. I know that sounds like, oh, what a big, bold prediction. But I had a few conferences this year, and that was the soup du jour. But also, I started hearing a lot of presentations from actual companies who are implementing it. Now, they, they seem like companies that were more on the the cutting edge of technology, more on the cutting edge of identity. But I think what you're going to see is that it becomes more commonplace. And two reasons why. I think if you are already doing MFA, it's kind of the next step in terms of giving a better user experience to your end user. And even if you're not, or if you are, either way, what value does the password really add in a multi-factor authentication. I mean, if you're doing a, a biometric, what is what does the password add to that? In fact, I think when you really inspect what the password does to the chain in terms of the quote-unquote unhappy path, which I talk about all the time, it's you have to have some way for people to unlock the password or maybe use the password as some form of you know, hey, I don't have my biometric, but I know my password. So maybe you are who you say you are. I just don't think the password adds value to the chain anymore. And so I think that people are absorbing that. I think not everything's going to be passwordless next year, but I think you're going to see the wave grow significantly. Jared, when it comes to your perspective on passwords, where do you stand right now? Uh, love it to death. It's a good I, thing. I, I, <laughs> When I'm talking about passwords, I go back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And the French Knigget, John Cleese, standing on top yelling, what's your password? And it, the, the back and forth, that's literally the, the technology that we're using today. We've just implemented it with ones and zeros instead of two people yelling back and forth over a castle wall. Um, the, the big concern I have when I look at passwordless, and, and this is a little offshoot, is... Um, from a, a legal perspective, when we talk about authenticating to devices, we talk about um, biometrics, we talk about um, you know taking the password out of the mix. We, we still have a challenge in the US with the court system uh, understanding the application of the Fourth Amendment when it comes to technology. So I'm a, I'm a you know full disclosure uh, paid member uh, supporter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation absolutely believe in the mission of that organization and, and the work that they're doing. And um, when, when I look at uh, cases where an, an individual might be asked to, to turn over a device or to grant access to something, the, the current law, the ruling uh, precedent, I should say, is that you can't be forced to tell somebody your password, but you can be forced to hold your finger to a fingerprint reader to unlock something. And uh, that's, fundamentally it's the same principle that there's a lock and I have the authority to either unlock or, or lock that lock to grant access to whatever's on the other side. And if we go full on passwordless without resolving the legal issues, 
we are going to have cases where uh, people are turning over information that they don't want to turn over, that they're not legally obligated to turn over, but um, it's being interpreted like that in a, a court of law. And I just, I want to see that figured out. I, I have a, a, one of my former neighbors is a, a defense lawyer. And I asked him about it point blank. I'm like, how, if, if A and B are the same thing, it's just a different implementation of the same technology, then why is it interpreted different, differently? And his answer to me was, well, it's because whoever argued the, the case, uh, the one attorney did a better job than the other. That terrifies me, guys. But yeah. that's my, my one hesitation, my one concern about going full on passwordless is the legal side of it. Yeah, that is an interesting point, I think. Yeah, I mean, how quickly will laws of the land catch up to technology? They're notoriously behind, right? Yeah. And I think that would scare off you know, some folks from thinking about that perspective as, okay, well, you know, if we're really trying to provide the best security, you could make the argument that passwordless based on that interpretation of the law lowers your security, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is absolutely asinine in my head, but that's where we are today. <laughs> I think it's going to be a very ugly, very uncomfortable court case. And nobody wants to volunteer to be the defender in that case. No, nobody wants to be on the defense of, of um, setting that precedent. But I, I think that's what's going to need to happen in order for us to land on a, a better understanding. All right. So here's my bold prediction for 2023 on identity. I went completely the opposite way of both of you guys. I think it's going to be a year where we go back to basics a bit more. Fundamentals when it comes to access management, identity governance, privileged access. I think we're going to see a lot of organizations really taking stock of their core identity and access management, use cases, capabilities, and technologies and going back and really nailing those fundamentals better than maybe they have in the past. I think part of that's going to be driven by the economy. I don't think there's going to be, I think we're seeing a pullback, at least on the U.S. side. So I think there's going to be a question to, to say, how do we do more with less or do better with what we have already and try to button up some of those holes? So the way I see it is I think, I think we'll see more companies really getting back to the basics a little bit. Maybe they've been distracted over the last few years with things like, Zero, Zero trust, trust. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or analytics or AI, right, or things like that. And there, I think they will have gone through this process where there's like, oh yeah, we bought this thing and we can't really use it the way we thought because we didn't do this other really important thing first. We didn't solve our data quality issue, or we didn't yeah. actually fix our business process to align with the way that our tools work or the way we want them to work and things like that. So I think it'll be you know going back to basics and. And figuring out <laughs> how to get those done first. And I think that's a good thing because I think we continually need to go back and review things and not just sit on our laurels and say, okay, well, we solved that problem five years ago. So that's good. Things have changed and there probably needs to be a little bit of re-architecting of process, maybe people, maybe technology, right? To, to modernize and move with the times and catch back up. And then that sets you up for the next cycle of, okay, well, we're comfortable where we are. Now what's next? Let's go to XYZ, whatever that ends up being. Blockchain, quantum, you know, voice biometrics, decentralized, you know, identity or uh, self-sovereign identity, right? Or things like that. So that's where I think things are are headed. I don't know, Jim, you and I, we, we work a lot together. You know, what do you think about what I'm thinking is my bold prediction of, of going back, not to the stone age, but going back to the basics, n nailing yeah. those. I mean, it makes sense, especially given the, 
economic um, uh, premise that you put forth that companies are going to be strapped for money potentially if that if that plays out because I don't think that's a guarantee. People are calling for a recession, recession. A lot of times when that's everybody's saying there's going to be a recession, that's when the recession doesn't happen. So, and by the way, I'm not telling people. So keep saying it. Yeah, 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 go for it. Um, But in that context, then companies do with what, what, you know, I need to make myself valuable around here. What am I going to do? The thing that I think hurts that perspective, Jeff, is that I think, the demand for cybersecurity talent definitely outweighs what's available today. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks are in their roles in IM or in, or in kind of stretch opportunities, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, we've all been there, um, but it makes it hard to know what to do to kind of get back to fundamentals when you, you're like new to the position, right? I think so, yeah. But I think that's where you know, the community comes together, right? And, you know, I'll point to ID Pro, which is a great community of identity people, a very healthy Slack channel that exists where people can drop in and ask questions and things like that. I think we benefit from a time where there is so much more information as of right now, today, around identity and how to get things done than there was this time a year ago. And exponentially more than, you know, years and years and years ago as people have gotten into this. Um, you you can pop up a YouTube video about any and, and look on any topic, right? We basically have gone into the matrix where you know Neo learns kung, kung fu, fu. <laughs> yep. right? You're downloading a thing; it's the same thing. Like I'm pulling up the skill right away, and I'm seeing how it's done. It's a little micro training, essentially. So I think I think I think you're right. I think there will be people who uh, you know maybe don't have that experience, but I think they benefit also from the people who came before them and the contribution to the body of knowledge that exists as a whole from society, specifically identity, you know, Jared's doing LinkedIn and, and training and other things. We're doing this podcast, right? Uh, our friend Andrew is doing videos on YouTube and he's also doing LinkedIn learning stuff. So there's, there's just so much more content out there now that I feel like it's easier to catch up. What's missing from that content though, and this goes back to earlier, Jared, what you're saying is the soft skills is you can be the smartest person in the world, but you can't, if you can't articulate <laughs> what it is you're trying to do, nothing's going to happen. So I think, I think there's a, a yin and a yang to it. Yeah. If, if you're trying to get people to stay in for the long haul to build out a um, healthy identity program, convincing them that it's not all going to happen overnight, that it's going to be, you know, in some cases, you talk about role-based access controls. If you large enterprise and you're deploying technology that, that even if it's leveraging AI to go through or machine learning and churn through all that data to help you arrive more quickly at what that RBAC program or ABAC program might look like, um, it's it's still going to take a minute. And keeping people interested, keeping people excited is not, it, you can't do it with stats. You can't do it with numbers. Uh, but I, I really do like the the notion, Jeff, number one, if you combine the ID Pro community with the Identity Defined Security Alliance, which is more vendor-driven, vendor-centric, I think the resources between those two organizations for identity professionals, if you've never sat in the seat before and your boss comes to you and says, guess what? You're the identity person. Figure it out. You've got a, a world of knowledge and people hungry to share it with you right there between 
those two, uh, those two groups. But I also love the, the notion of fundamentals. Fundamentals win the day. Anybody who's read the book Moneyball knows that you, know, you don't have to hit a home run every time you're up to bat. You just got to get on base. You get enough, enough folks who understand the fundamentals and can keep that, uh, that machine moving forward then you're staying ahead of the people who would do you harm. You're staying ahead of the accidental uh, incidents that um, result in harm or disruption to the business. So yeah, fundamentals. I, I hope you're right on that, man. I really do. I, I'll i talk about quantum and all the kind of far out years out. I, I think there's still uh, a critical need for people to be focusing on innovation but uh, you know, you've, if everybody is focused on innovation and nobody's focused on fundamentals, we'll never get there, right? Because uh, things are all going to fall apart uh, before then. All right, I think we've set a record officially for our <laughs> longest episode ever. So we're going to start to wrap things up. Um, we're we're going to end on a lighter note as we always do, but we'll try to keep it brief if we can. And we're going to stay with the predictions. So. What is your non-identity-related prediction for 2023? Jared, you go first. All right. I've got two. Number one, I predict that people who listen to this podcast are going to reach out to me on LinkedIn and keep the conversation going. So uh, let's see how accurate I am on that one. And we'll have your LinkedIn uh, in our show notes so people make it easier for people. I really appreciate that. Um, But I'm, I'm a big movie buff. Uh, I, uh, you know, you can look me up on IMDb. I, I, uh, that's a whole nother story. The number of screenplays I've written, the number of shorts that I've shot. I'm actually in a feature on Tubi. Um, it's uh, bong of the living dead. It's a zombie stoner comedy that was shot here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm a zombie. See if you can pick me up. <laughs> um, but my other prediction is movie related. I predict that people who go see guardians of the galaxy three in theaters are going to be crying like babies before that movie's done. Really? I think that James Gunn is, uh, he's brilliant. He knows that he and Taika Waititi are two of my favorite storytellers. And I think with, uh, with this culmination of the guardian story that it's going to tug on heartstrings in a way that people aren't ready for. That's my prediction. All right. Well, I'm prepared for that. I'm a, I'm a guardians galaxy fan and I love Taika Waititi and his, his take on the Marvel universe. I think Thor love and thunder and yeah. Thor Ragnarok are two of my favorites. Cause they, they don't get serious. <laughs> They're yeah. just fun movies. All right, Jim, how about yourself? What's your non-identity prediction for 23? Well, I'm going to make a prediction about the identity at the center podcast. We had a double up on our listenership this year. I'm going to predict another double up. So we won't know if I was right until the end of 2023, but I mean, I think we're, you know, we're getting great guests like Jared and, you know, we're being consistent, putting out episodes every week and people seem to appreciate it. So, you know, as they spread the word, I think it happens. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I think, you know, people sharing it, following it, subscribing to it, you know, is, is all good stuff. You know, being just part of the, I think, the little kind of community that we've built here together, I think has been a lot of fun. So, um, you know, we certainly have have met listeners and those have been all been, you know, super positive experiences and you know, got to do some interesting things maybe in Las Vegas together, which was uh, something that we won't talk about on the podcast. But if you were there, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully that'll you know, continue to roll. We'll keep doing it for as long as we're having fun doing it. And we'll try to keep it as as true to home as we can and not make it a commercial for any anything and kind of a vendor neutral safe place. So that's kind of the goal here. Um 
mine is somewhat selfish. Um, I'm going to say here that in 23, 2023, uh, the Cubs are going to beat the Cardinals when they play in London during June of 2023, because I actually have tickets to the game, one of the games there, and I'm planning on being in London for watching one of those games. So I am hopeful that my Chicago Cubs will beat the Cardinals, at least one of those games, hopefully (laughs) the one I'm at. Cubs have not been good uh, the last couple of years. Uh, We are still celebrating the World Series uh, from several years back. Um, I think they've, you know, that's that's totally been fine for a lot of people, but I'm expecting a Cubs victory when I attend the game uh, in London. So that's my prediction. All right, we're officially an hour and 15, our longest episode by far. Um, We're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week and probably this year as well. So I want to thank everyone who's been part of this journey with us listening. We're on the web, identitythecenter.com. We're on Twitter so far, (laughs) IDAC podcast. Who knows? Maybe 23 will bring a Mastodon account of some sort. Um, And maybe we'll be over there. But uh, we're looking forward to connecting with folks at conferences that that we'll be at over the next year. Identiverse, Gartner. Uh, probably other ones that I'm missing and not just thinking about at the moment, but those are the two ones that come jump to my mind. Um, and if you have ideas and comments for the show, hit us up on LinkedIn. Uh, the show notes will be chock full of stuff uh, for this one. We'll have Jared's LinkedIn. We'll have the LinkedIn learning sort of playlist that also includes uh, Jared's stuff, uh, links to Identiverse, Gartner, Jim and I, and I'm sure a bunch of other stuff that I'm forgetting right now. So with that, we're going to go ahead and leave it. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.